0: This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokmarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll look at where Florida began and where it's going with Albert C. Hine, author of Geologic History of Florida, Major Events That Formed the Sunshine State.
1: At this point in time, no one's saying we have to evacuate the entire state and head for higher ground, but we're already starting to see effects of streets that are perennially flooded, or frequently flooded, and they become flooded more and more frequently.
2: We'll visit the small Florida community of Sorrento The village of Sorrento is located in present-day Lake County, actually East Lake County, but when it was first settled back in the 1870s, it was actually part of Orange County. And we'll discuss Winter Park architect James Gamble Rogers. All
0: that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Florida used to be in Africa. Florida also used to be located at the South Pole. As part of the continent Gondwana 650 million years ago, the foundation of Florida was tucked between the land masses that would become South America and Africa. The rest of eastern North America was then part of another continent called Laurentia. As the Earth's tectonic plates shifted, the basement rocks of our modern continents moved across the globe. About 300 million years ago, Gondwana and Laurentia collided, forming the Appalachian Mountains in what would become North America and the Maritonide Mountains in what would eventually be Africa. The Florida portion of Gondwana joined with Laurentia at a line that runs southwest to northeast through modern South Alabama, South Georgia, Southern South Carolina, and Eastern North Carolina. By about 200 million years ago, Gondwana and Laurentia had sutured together to form the supercontinent Pangaea, At this point, Florida's basement rock was located north of the equator, much closer to its current position, but was surrounded by land. Florida was near the middle of the Pangaea supercontinent, far from any ocean, probably surrounded by desert. Pangaea did not last long from a geological perspective, breaking up after just 85 million years. The breakup of Pangaea resulted in the creation of Florida as a peninsula. Albert C. Hine is a professor of marine science at the University of South Florida and author of the book Geologic History of Florida Major Events that Form the Sunshine State.
1: The basement rocks underneath our feet right now probably where we are here in in southeast Florida are close to six thousand meters beneath our feet. Those are crystalline igneous and metamorphic rocks um, that were COMPOSED OF BOTH THE AFRICAN CONTINENT AND THE SOUTH AMERICAN CONTINENT AND, and um, WERE FUSED TOGETHER uh, AT ONE POINT IN TIME FORMING A MEGA CONTINENT CALLED Pangaea that existed for several hundred million years and broke up about 200 million years ago into the uh, continental fragments that we see today. So North America separated from Africa, South America separated from Africa, uh, Europe and Asia did their own thing, India uh, broke away and, and and slammed into the south side of Asia creating the uh, uh, Himalaya Mountains and so it was a period of time where there was a significant reorganization of the continental masses on, on Earth. And, and during that time, the uh, basement rocks beneath the Florida Peninsula, created the Florida Peninsula, were isolated and, and, and left alone. And, and then on top of the basement rocks, the limestones have accumulated that we see, and, and the rocks that we, and sediments that we see that form our beaches uh, have occurred over the past 200 million years.
0: For tens of millions of years, most of Florida was separated from the rest of North America by the Georgia Channel Seaway. Eventually, the water receded and Florida became a visible extension of North America, but with a distinctly different foundation than the rest of the continent. The Suwannee Basin and the Florida Bahama blocks that make up the foundation of the Florida Peninsula have much more in common with the rocks of Northwest Africa than with the bedrock of the rest of North America.
1: The Florida platform is a structurally bounded geologic feature. There there are structural boundaries called faults, and there are uh, different types of faults. The east side of the Florida platform actually is part of the Bahamas, so Florida and the Bahamas were joined at one time. They've separated uh, uh, since they were uh, first first created as uh, continental pieces separating from Africa and South America. So there's a large fault there. Um, There is a large fault in North Florida, South Georgia. Uh, It's a different type of fault. There is another fault uh, that defines the Western boundary of the Florida platform, and that's a, even a different kind of fault, where the Florida shelf uh, and slope steps off into the deep Gulf of Mexico. It's the escarpment; it's about a 1500 meter high escarpment. Drill down, you find that there's actually a fault there. It's inactive. And then south of us, where Cuba is, there's a series of thrust faults. And, and so the Florida basement rocks have been defined as a distinct geologic piece of the crust of the earth as a result of these different faults.
0: At different points in geologic history, Florida has been totally submerged, but it has also been twice as wide as it is now. Prehistoric animals and probably pre-Columbian people lived on dry land that is now submerged under 200 feet of water in the Gulf of Mexico. Albert Hein. During glacial
1: events, the huge ice sheet, it's called the Laurentide Ice Sheet, uh, covered most of uh, North America. And the Feno-Scandinavian ice sheet covered most of Europe. And water was extracted from the ocean and and, and, um, snowed on land, and that snow never melted. And so over thousands of years, that snow built up into thick ice sheets. And um, so water was withdrawn from the ocean as much as 400 feet. So sea level dropped about 400 feet, 130 meters. And so uh, as a result, Florida being topographically low and flat, that exposed a huge portion of the Florida platform to the air and became dry. And so we've mapped uh, paleo shorelines out onto the shelf, the shorelines that are, which were at the coastline, there was land, there were probably animals and maybe even pre-Columbian people lived out there, in, uh, and it's now 70 meters, 200 feet underwater.
0: Albert C. Hine is also co-author of the book Sea Level Rise in Florida, Science, Impacts, and Options. He says that rising sea levels are an inevitable part of Florida's future.
1: It's a function of global warming and global climate change, but global warming. And, and uh, I realize, scientists realize, of course, it's been politicized. There are a number of things in science that get politicized to our chagrin. But the data are real and the models are as best, the predictive models are as best we can possibly make them and they're getting better with time. And that's been demonstrated. But all that clearly shows that sea level is going to rise in Florida in time periods that are important to humans, not thousands of years or millions of years, but in decades. And as a result, we have to you know, start to plan how we're gonna deal with that. And as we're planning, we, we continue to try to make the science better, try to make the predictions better and as time goes on, those predictions might change and therefore our response to those predictions will change.
0: Those predictions are likely to get worse rather than better as time goes on. Many Florida cities are already seeing extreme drainage problems related to rising sea levels.
1: At this point in time, no one's saying we have to evacuate the entire state and head for higher ground, but we're already starting to see effects of streets that are perennially flooded, are frequently flooded, and they become flooded more and more frequently and pretty soon they'll be flooded all the time. And we reach a point, well, what do we do? And front yards become soggy, and pretty soon they go underwater, what do we do? And, and so there's going to have to be a, a political will, economic will, to deal with that situation. People can't live in situations, uh, environments, where their front yard is always underwater. It's dangerous, and, and uh, the land isn't worth anything, And and certainly uh, the flood insurance industry isn't going to provide flood insurance. And so that's just one small example. Uh, Those properties will probably have to be consumed by uh, government. The people that live there will have to be compensated, and, and that land will have to be put to other use.
0: Because Florida is mainly flat, with no striking geological features above the surface of the land, people often have the misconception that there's not much to geology in Florida. Albert Hine knows that is not the case.
1: That was my, yeah, you know, conception when I first came here. People think of geology, and I did too. Uh, something in your face, like the Grand Canyon, or or like Yosemite, or the Himalayas, or some spectacular. Even New England, uh, there's, it's mountainous, and and uh, or, or the Blue Ridge, uh, uh, the, the Appalachian Mountains. And uh, but Florida's low and flat, and so the geology is beneath our feet, and so it's kind of out of sight, out of mind. But in fact, Florida has got just as interesting a geologic history as any other place, as far as I'm concerned. Perhaps not as spectacular from a scenic point of view as the Grand Canyon. Seeing Grand Canyon as a, a world class by itself in my opinion. But nevertheless, the, um, the story of the geologic history of Florida is something you couldn't make up. And it involves collisions with Cuba, it involves drownings, it involves uh, strong currents passing over the Florida platform, uh, huge sharks that were 60 feet long. And, and uh, so Florida has got an amazing very interesting geologic history, but it's all in the subsurface. And so we have to drill holes, and or we use remote sensing, geophysical remote sensing techniques to try to determine what's beneath our
0: feet. From using coquina rock for construction, to using phosphate for agriculture and munitions, to using Florida's many beaches for recreation, people utilize Florida geology in a variety of ways.
1: Geology controls our lives, whether we know it or not, realize it or not. In Florida, uh, we can start with the beaches. That's, those are geologic features, for sure, and, and they have geologic histories. The modern coastal system is about three or 4,000 years old, and so there's a geologic history there. How did it form what was there before 3,000 years ago? So I would say the beaches are probably the most prominent um, component of Florida's geology that people see. In the middle of the state are phosphate deposits. Phosphate is a mineral, or a mineral family that contains the element P Phosphorus, and that's used in fertilizers. So it's essential in growing food. So it's not a strategically important um, geologic commodity like oil and gas or chromium or some of the rare earth elements that we put into computers. But nevertheless, we mine it in Polk County and Hendry County and Central Peninsula, Florida, to a significant degree. It is about six or 8,000 people involved in the phosphate mining industry. So it, it, it employs a lot of people. And it's a a product that we export, and so it is a component. I can't tell you to what degree, but a component of the state's economy. Um, Just basic rock, the limestone rock itself, is used uh, in cement, and you see it in the facing of of old banks and buildings. And so we use geologic products uh, almost every day in our lives. We just don't realize it.
0: Albert C. Hine is a professor of marine science at the University of South Florida, he's author of the book Geologic History of Florida, Major Events that Form the Sunshine State, and co-author of the book Sea Level Rise in Florida, Science, Impacts, and Options. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brotmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find great books on Florida history and culture, listen to archived editions of Florida Frontiers radio and television programs, subscribe to our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org.
3: A lot of people count it prison. I was growing up, but these are my roots and this is what I love, cause everybody knows me and I know them and I believe that's the way we were supposed to live. I wouldn't trade one single day, here in small town USA. Joining
0: us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben,
2: Sorrento is a small Florida community that started with big
0: aspirations.
2: Yeah, that's right, Ben. The the village of Sorrento is located in present-day Lake County, actually East Lake County. But when it was first settled back in the 1870s, it was actually part of Orange County. Uh, It wasn't until 1887 when Lake County was created out of parts of Sumter and Orange County that the small village of Sorrento uh, sort of went with it. But getting back to the early settlement period in the 1870s, this was a time when a lot of land was being purchased by mostly uh, Northerners moving into Florida to start their own farms to try and fulfill this kind of Jeffersonian ideal of living and and working off the land and, and building these small subsistence farms and then exporting that material back to uh, northern climates. And like many small communities in central Florida, the primary crop was, of course, citrus. They grew uh, pineapple and other fruits and vegetables. But one of the biggest issues was transportation. Uh, And in the 1880s, the establishment of railroad lines made the shipment of these goods much easier. And the community really prospered. They even started their own newspaper called the Florida Highland Press. Uh, And in this newspaper, they produced a number of kind of boosterism sort of articles that were trying to attract even more northern farmers to move down. Generally, they would list the names of farmers, how many acres they had, and how many acres were actually under production at the time. But they kind of build themselves as a not-your-run-of-the-mill farmer society. They kind of uh, wanted to become this sort of intellectual semi-utopia, if you will. They formed a, a literary society uh, as early as the late 1870s. Uh, they had uh, regular meetings where they talked about, you know, the latest American and, and European literary works. They built a post office, a school, a church. They were uh, busy really trying to form a community rather than just a for-profit enterprise. Now, you have a variety of interesting documents here from the early days of Sorrento. Yeah, that's right. What we're looking at is a collection that first came to the Florida Historical Society back in the 1950s, and it's really a great cross-section of all of the Uh, types of activities that I was just talking about. In fact, we're looking at here an example of an original program printed by the Sorrento Literary Society. This is for their Christmas evening dinner, uh, December 25th of 1879, and they list some of the entertainment options. They had uh, musicians that were coming from neighboring communities, and from what we can tell based on this documentation, it was quite a celebration. Uh, We also have, this is a great example of what I meant by the boosterism. This is a real estate agent pamphlet that would have been distributed throughout the country. Uh, as far north as, as Michigan. In fact, a lot of people saw this and, and moved down from Michigan and Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, New York, places like that. And it includes a small map of the area of Sorrento. These are hand-drawn surveys. And this is the original material. So if we open up the pamphlet, you can see the hand-drawn survey listing where private residences were, where all of the lakes were, where there was empty and available land. It also indicated where there were swamp lands, where there was highland. Uh, again, trying to give the person who who may be on the fence about moving to Florida and incentivize them to move to this particular area of central Florida in Lake County. We also have several other survey maps, and we actually have two copies of that original newspaper, the Florida Highland Press. The copies that we have date from November of 1886. And inside of those papers, there are some wonderful descriptions of the communities uh, that were uh, living and really thriving in Sorrento. And I'll read just quickly. This is a paragraph talking about the progress that had been made between about 1875 to when this paper was printed in 1886. Uh, And the uh, editor writes here, quote, Ten years ago, the first Yankees invaded this section of country in search of a place to settle and make a home. The forest stood unbroken for miles and miles, and the clearings were few and far between. Not a sign of civilization was to be seen. The nearest store and post office was at Sanford, over 20 miles away. What was there here to attract intelligent men and women? What was it that brought them here from the large cities and towns of the north, where they were accustomed to all the luxuries and comforts of life? It was the same high, beautiful, and healthy pine hills that God had meant for man's inheritance. These same piney woods are here today, only broken at intervals by a neat home in Orange Grove at some thrifty settler. The pioneers had but to see this land with its grand and salubrious climate, and they were content to stay and fight the battle for civilization, which they knew must inevitably come, unquote. So that's an example of the kind of flowery language, I guess, that was used to help incentivize further growth in this small community. So what ultimately happened to the town of Sorrento? Well, it's interesting. Based on all the documentation we see here, you would think that this would have become uh, a major city, especially into the 20th century. But unfortunately, it really didn't materialize. Uh, a lot of that had to do with its proximity to more successful communities, specifically Mount Dora, that was just to the west of the town of Sorrento. Sanford, again, only 20 miles away. These towns grew a little bit faster and attracted more visitors. Now, another big issue was the Great Freeze in the, in the mid-1890s that destroyed a lot of the citrus crops throughout, uh, well, much of central Florida. But the village of Sorrento was particularly affected, and a lot of people lost everything. And, and many of the people that had moved down a decade or so earlier, some even earlier than that, decided to move back north. They had essentially lost everything. So the town never really turned into... Uh, what I think a lot of these early settlers and boosters really anticipated and had hoped for. So even today, the, the village itself still exists, uh, but it's, it's fairly small. We're talking about only a few hundred people. It's part of the unincorporated part of, of East Lake County, very close to, to the town of Mount Dora, again, not very far from Sanford either. So it's still kind of a nice rural snapshot of a really interesting time in Florida history. And these documents are, are vitally important for researchers, specifically for genealogy, we have some names of people that were here, maybe for only a brief period. It talks a little bit about their activities, who they married, who they were having business transactions with, and, and a lot of these people left Florida. So this is a great, a great little record of an interesting period of tremendous growth in Florida's history, uh, and it makes for kind of an interesting story, especially for the late 19th century. Well, thanks, Ben. Sure, thank you. Ben
0: DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. I wouldn't trade
3: one single day I'm proud to say I love this place Give me a Saturday night My baby by my side Sweet home Alabama And a six pack of light And old dirt road And I'll be just fine Give me a Sunday morning That's full of grace simple and I'll be okay, yeah, I'll be okay here in small town, USA.
0: This is Florida Frontiers.
3: Whiskey and water, oh, whiskey and water. Here's to fear and pain and sorrow, Jack Daniels, if you please, look out now.
0: Gamble Rogers was a beloved Florida folk musician who died trying to save a man from drowning at Flagler Beach. His father, architect James Gamble Rogers, is largely responsible for the unique look of the homes and buildings in Witter Park. Holly Baker is a graduate student in the public history program at the University of Central Florida and has this report. He was able to bring his talents and skills to many
4: different styles. And he was very good at the Romantic style, so he did Spanish eclectic, as we might call it today, French provincial, Greek revival, neocolonial, with equal competence and turning out some beautiful results that are, to this day, considered and respected to be among the finest examples of that style of residential architecture.
5: That was Frank Rourke talking about the architecture of James Gamble Rogers II. Rogers was an architect who designed several notable buildings in Winter Park, Florida, in the early 20th century. I recently sat down with Frank Rourke, a general contractor who specializes in historic restoration projects. For many years, Frank Rourke has been at the forefront of local efforts to preserve the architectural legacy of James Gimble Rogers II. Frank Rourke tells us more about James Gimbel Rogers II and the quality of his work.
4: The scale is so well done, so consistent, and he had a way of doing a nice human scale that brought it down into a more intimate experience. That's very difficult to do today, and the taste of the general public seems to be that they want things so much bigger. But he had this great ability and genius understanding scale and detail and how to use it that seems to be consistent in his works.
5: During the 1930s and 1940s, Rogers designed many outstanding houses, but perhaps his most notable one is the Barber residence, now known as Casa Feliz, or Happy House. Frank Rourke has more about Casa Feliz.
4: The house that we call Casa Feliz today, originally the Barber House, designed and finished construction in 1933. Because it was one of the only projects he had going on, he could devote his full time to the design and also the oversight of the construction he came out to the job almost every day he would even set up a drafting table on the site to work out details of the house the house built to feel as if it was an andalusian farmhouse it's of the highest standards even you know by today's standards and again i think one of the reasons is you had so few projects going on workers were so happy to have work that they really poured their hearts and soul into the craftsmanship and they took a lot of pride in it so the house is so well built that it's, it was built to stand for many decades, and we hope even centuries.
5: In 2000, Casa Feliz was purchased to be torn down to make way for a residence four times its size. But due to the efforts of a group of local citizens called Friends of Casa Feliz, the home was saved from destruction. The home was added to the National Register of Historic Places in 2008. It now serves as a historic house museum and venue, James Gamble Rogers II continued to practice architecture until he was in his 80s, designing homes, churches, apartment buildings, courthouses, and even the Olin Library at Rollins College in Winter Park. Frank Rourke reflects on James Gamble Rogers II's legacy.
4: From the very early part of his career when he was designing Casa Felice to towards the very end of his career doing the Olin Library at Rollins, we have, in, every, in between, we have this remarkable decades-long career of impact as I put my hands on some of the houses and buildings that he's designed as I see the quality of the materials and the craftsmanship that he designed and inspired and the people that constructed these things and I think that's an amazing legacy.
5: As Frank Rourke explains, many of the historic structures designed by James Gamble Rogers II are vulnerable to demolition.
4: Unfortunately, I would say that all of the homes remaining are in danger, and in Winter Park especially. The property has become quite valuable and very desirable. We see where homeowners that will buy a lot, they will tear the house down and build a new, much larger house on it, even if the house on it was a fine example done by a notable architect.
5: Many of the structures designed by James Gamble Rogers II no longer exist those that remain are still threatened. Frank Rourke reminds us of the importance of preservation and saving historic structures from destruction.
4: Central Florida, in Winter Park especially, its historic preservation ordinances are among the uh, weakest in the state. We do not have much of an ability to save our historic resources or to protect them. It's, It's pretty much on a voluntary basis. We've been working on that in the community for for some time. A lot of folks put a lot of effort in that over the last 10 years, but we continue to lose some of our historic resources and unfortunately I fear that maybe the only things that are going to be left are just a few iconic structures that can manage to be saved. It would be my hope that future generations come to understand and respect the place for architecture, historical architecture, and for the the built environment that we have. And I hope in the frenzy of growth and development, while that's important and is inevitable, I hope we don't lose sight of those things that brought us to where we are and that we prize and save those precious works that once they're gone, we can't bring them back.
5: For Florida Frontiers, I am Holly Baker, a graduate student in the Public History Program at the University of Central Florida.
0: You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Join us right here again every week. Listen online at myfloridahistory.org or as a podcast. Join the conversation on Facebook, where you can also get our daily posts today in Florida history. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Robert Casanello. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle.